Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. Got a great podcast for you today. I'm not going to say too much about it. A fantastic guy called Matt Boyle took the time out to come and talk to us. Matt um, has been in in vehicle electrification for a really long time. He was the president and CEO of a a fantastic company called Sevcon, which was sold about a year ago to Borg Warner. Uh, Matt's been keeping himself pretty busy since, so really pleased that he managed to find the time to come and talk to us today. So without further ado, we'll get into the the show, and I, I really hope you enjoy it. We've got Matt Boyle, um, OBE, no less, with us uh, today. So, uh, Matt, could you introduce yourself and just tell me who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, Matt Boyle, I've been never at the OBE. Um, Ex-president and CEO of Sefcon. Um, been retired for a year, but very, very busy. Sefcon uh, was a US public company. We sold it to Borg Warner in 2017, and Borg Warner assumed it into their PDS division. What I've been doing for the last year is doing what I was doing when I was at Borg Warner, getting involved in power electronics machines and drives, trying to make sure that we had enough skilled workforce around in the UK to exploit it. Um, And at the moment, I'm really enjoying myself. Great. So just for people who might not know, so Borg Warner, obviously everyone probably knows Borg Warner, big tier one, or everyone listens to this knows Borg Warner. Sevcon, um, what exactly was it that Sevcon did? Where, where did they come from? Yeah, uh, Sevcon history um, started in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And what Sevcon did then was it... Uh, produced thyristor-based controls, so very, very basic switching controls for the control of electric motors on battery-powered vehicles. Okay. Their first application was the milk float. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the milk float, um, yes, Ernie's um, fastest milk float in the West was powered by a Sefcon controller. And just, so a milk, because... It's a, I said something about milk floats last week and everyone looked at me and was like, what's one of them? So a milk float, for those of us who are either young enough to not remember or who live in America, um, is a, was a very slow commercial vehicle that was ran on electricity uh, for delivering milk in the morning because it was quiet. Um, so in the early days of the EV world, actually milk floats were a bit of a problem because people used to say, oh, electric vehicles, they're rubbish. They're just like milk floats <laughs> in the UK. But actually, Sevcon were the milk float controller guys. That's, That's right. where they came from. But then the business really grew. So you're doing sort of power electronics for all, all sorts of applications. Yeah, power electronics um, is quite a, an unusual and niche type um, activity. Um, 
what it does is essentially improve the efficiency of the whole system of mm. controlling electric motor. Um, and it reduces heat, it reduces sound losses, um, uh, and it reduces power losses in the motor. Doing it properly extends the range of a vehicle and keeps the losses down. So it can be used, uh, it was used extensively in things like forklift trucks, mm. radio work platforms, airport ground support equipment, things that would go necessarily into buildings, yeah. therefore you didn't want them belching out diesel or petrol or gas for that matter. Um, but also things that did a, a shift life, so like eight hours of effort yeah. in a day without recharging. Because you're obviously, today it's all about electric cars, but there's been electric vehicles around for as long as there've been vehicles, and the industrial segment was really is big big segment. That's right. I mean, the uh, Mercedes were making electric vehicles 140 years ago. Mm. Um, but the advent of the internal combustion engine and the free availability almost of, of a tank full of gas and all the energy in it, getting you from A to B was so attractive that the investment in electric vehicles kind of fell by the wayside. But in industrial markets, um, things like forklift trucks, serial work platforms, that sort of thing, it was ideal because it could be used in, indoors as well as outdoors. Well, obviously, clean air was really important. Indeed, uh, indeed. Yeah. And did you see? Because you, you were, you were president of Sevcon for a good twenty years, right? Uh, twenty I, years. <laughs> yeah. So you know, more more than uh, a, a little while, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was like a. I mean, I would say we were doing electric vehicles since before they were cool. Yeah. But you were definitely doing electric vehicles since before they were cool. Uh, well. When did when did you really sort of see it turn go from being fork trucks and stuff to more? Because there must have been a few false starts along the way. Of, I, I mean, I, I remember we thought that it was going to take off a lot earlier than it did. Did you did you see that as well, or when did you really start to see things change? I think I think the advent of lithium ion batteries was the kind of first clue that we were given that that the game was changing. We were no longer lead acid. Yeah. We were no longer heavy, kind of difficult to recharge quickly. Mm. Um, when the first uh, lithium-ion packs came out in volume, um, they were targeted at on-road vehicles. Right. And that's when um, it was obvious that the electrification revolution was going to start. I think there were a number of false starts between kind of late um, 50s and 60s and around about uh, the turn of the millennium. Yeah. Um, EV1 was a great example of, of a, great, a good idea before its time. Mm. And you know some of these false starts actually, in my opinion, they actually did as a disservice mm. because a bit like the milk float analogy, yeah. it, you, the comparator was... You know, a McLaren or a or a Bentley diving off into the sunset doing 140 miles an hour versus well, a forklift truck or an aerial what platform. Yeah, things that didn't quite um, not sexy enough. No, not quite. And then, yeah, I guess some of the in the early days there were a few kind of people like thinking back to people like Modec, mm -hmm. and then of, of course because there was a tie up with Sevcon and. 
Smith's electric vehicles. There was. Similar long, long heritage back there. They started building milk floats. Those guys kind of getting going, but they're not quite managing to get going. And, you know, definitely a few little false starts there. Yeah. Did so, so be like early... 2000s into kind of 2005 yeah 2000 to 2005 the Sevcon order book started to look healthier as a consequence of mm. different battery technology but yeah. it didn't really take off until 2007-2008 right. when when the crash happened it was the year prior it was a record year for Sevcon and we right. were looking at another record year when essentially all credit stopped. And as we all know, that's taken a long time to work out. Yeah. However, um, in that time, we, as a number of other people did, continued to invest in the engineering. Yeah. And that stood us in good stead when 2009, 2010 came along and people started to take lithium-ion battery packs seriously and they found their ways into hybrid vehicles. And you, and by that point, you were, you were making power electronics and motor controllers for some quite interesting on-road and off-road you know things things sexier than a people people could see that that um all of a sudden um electric vehicles had become sexy and and some of it i have to say it was down to um foreign governments and foreign companies investing in it far quicker than the uk did um but we weren't we weren't too far behind them in the end. Yeah. The, 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 the kind of, the thing that really put us on the map as a business was the Paris Auto Show in 2011 when the Renault Twizy came out. Right. The Renault Twizy, on its original marketing um, photographs, had square wheels. They were actually, <laughs> they were actually um, round wheels behind square covers. Okay, so it looked, making like, a statement it looked there. like this thing had square wheels. <laughs> And that yeah. was that was that was interesting, and, and when and at the show, um, there were four vehicles on the Renault stand. Yeah, um, and one of them was a Twizy, and there were a lot of people interested in why Carlos Ghosn had decided to do that rather yeah. than an, another generation of PSA-powered uh, Renault vehicles. Now I know people have strong feelings about the Twizy, but I absolutely love them. I think mm. it's one of my sort of that's a it's a groundbreaking car. Never quite did as well as they thought it was going to do. That's right. But it's still going now. I mean, it still is a modern, you know, sort of futuristic platform now. But quite amazing, really, thinking then, sort of, uh, Sevcon's based in the northeast. You're on Team Valley. You, it's quite a big business by that point. But to have, like, such a, like, a globally significant product launch as with, I mean, with Breno, like... Yeah. You, you, that must have been a pretty amazing uh, time for the business. It was. Um, I would say, that in addition to that, um, we you had to grow up as a business. If mm. you're if you're providing product to industrial vehicles with no slate on them at all, it is a different game um, dealing with the automotive guys. Right. You have to up your game significantly. And one of the things that we did, again, following the continued investment during the recession was we came out of it far stronger engineering wise and yeah. we were capable of exploiting that. I like the Twizy too. I think it's a fantastic little little get around the city. Mm. I, I see I, I travel the world and I see them everywhere. Yeah. Small numbers yes, but they are everywhere. 
and they, I mean, they fit in perfectly in, to be frank, nicer places. Nice is the wrong word. Warmer places than the northeast of England. Yeah, it's, it's funny you should say that because <laughs> originally Renault, in their original brief to us about its use, they targeted Southern Europe. Yeah. So around the around the Algarve, around you know southern coasts of Spain and yeah. France, Italy, and uh, the largest market for the Twizy was actually Scandinavia. Really, Scandinavia. Okay, they're obviously hard, tougher than uh, well, we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, 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 I think there's a bit of that. There's, certainly, modestly after the launch, I would say about six months, seven months after the launch. Yeah, they discovered that leaving. The, the vehicle having no windows was definitely a marketing flaw. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they put windows in it quite quickly. Yeah. But the the people who loved it were the Scandinavians, and that's because of their green credentials. Right. Of course. Because there was there was literally nothing. There was nothing at the time, was there? There was sort no. of you could buy yeah. road registered EV in any sort of scale. That was that. I mean, it's it's funny to look compared to where we are today but it, it was it really was a very groundbreaking uh, mm. program and I mean it's, it's amazing it's a big testament to you and the team at Sevcon that um, the controls for that were done in the in the sunny northeast yeah yeah <laughs> where we definitely needed windows <laughs> yeah. um, so one of the things that was interesting about Sevcon was it was a uh, based in the UK but you were listed on, I'm going to say the New York Stock Exchange, is that right? Yeah, originally we were based on the Amex, the American Stock Exchange. Okay. Um, but um, latterly we were based on the NASDAQ. Okay, NASDAQ, um, okay. And yes, it's an interesting historical wandering of how a managing director of a UK engineering company also happens to be the CEO and president of an American public company. But it's an accident of history. <laughs> I, I, I should just—I I, I don't think there's many people who. <laughs> well, no, that, no. Uh, I, I actually pleasure. never found anyone, <laughs> anyone on any of the planes I was on, uh, that a, a, a similar job. Yeah. Um, but uh, Sevcon originally was part of a business called Joyce Lobel. Okay. That was bought by a U.S. public called Technical Operations. And okay. It was incorporated into one of their divisions, and over time. Technical operations grew as a conglomerate um, to be quite a large business, but uh, between the kind of 1980s and the late 1990s, it divested itself of much of their business. Okay. And then with two businesses left, what they decided to do was give existing technical operations shareholders a share in each business. So there was a share in Sefcon, okay. and it floated onto the Amex. Yeah. And a uh, share in, in a business called Landauer, and it eventually ended up in the New York Stock Exchange. Oh. So, essentially, um, my predecessor actually was was the person who floated the business off, and that's how the person who ran Sefcon was also an American public company CEO. <laughs> and how, what was it like? I mean, um, we did you have to go to sort of shareholder meetings in the US all the time or are you on a plane for your yeah, home? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Nobody's ever given me the sympathy I deserve for having done this. <laughs> um, yes, you. there were at least five board meetings a year. Okay. Um, and uh, there were 
latterly, um, for about 10 years, there were stockholder calls yeah. um, that we had to go through on a quarterly basis. Um, they had all the reporting required of a US public company, yeah. um, which became very onerous after 2007, 2008. Sarbanes Oxley and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Um, and yes, I went to conferences, I went to shareholder events, um, you know, raising the profile of the business, selling the, pro- the business to, to public investors. Was uh, it difficult that there was such a s- uh, separation? Like, my my board here, it's quite easy, though. They come here <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, I want to show them what's happening in the business. We go outside and we have a look around and we kick the tyres, but your board was in in the US and was not operationally as involved in the business and that, that must have been really difficult to manage that yeah it it, it, it wasn't it wasn't um, the only executive on the board normally in, in a US public company is the chief exec right okay. um, so it's a different it's a different kind of structure in the US often yeah and in my particular case there were no executives on the board um, there was one little um, uh, sidetracked towards the end of uh, Sevcon's public life mm. but for for the best part of 50 odd years it was a chief executive officer uh, and a group of non-exec directors Right. and the non-exec directors were there to yes give the chief exec a hard time every now and again <laughs> uh, but to essentially to represent the interests of the shareholders and make sure governance was, was proper um, and you know, you, you, these boards, um, my board especially, did have its moments, but they were, they were generally and genuinely in support of the CEO and trying to to make the business better. Um, right. We we met, um, in some some occasions outside the U.S., but the vast majority were in Boston. The meetings were in Boston. Right. Where they were all, well, most of them were located. I think it's hard to imagine now. Oh, well, it's not necessarily the case everywhere, but ev- you know everyone's so into electric vehicle stuff now, and it's like a really hot space, and there's a lot. But back then, it it was like this. You you must have it must have been a big job just trying to sort of communicate what you were doing with the business, what the mm. end markets were. Mm. Like we often, we often find people don't really understand what it is that we do. Mm. Um, but then when that when it all started to change and the EV market was going, were there s- did you meet much resistance in, from the board? If you were saying, well, we want to spend all this money on engineering, like, how did they view that? Did, did they get it in terms of what might be going to happen with electric vehicles? Or was it just sort of a, quite a transactional? It's, um, it's a very good question. Um, I cannot fault my board's support of me. Mm. I never had a no. Right, okay. And that was partly to do with the excellent chairmanships I went through, okay. with, with one or two exceptions. Mm. Um, but the board were very supportive of management. And that's, okay. I, think, I think that's key to the success of a business. Mm. Um, oftentimes, um, investors will, will look at the board and think they have to always give the chief exec a hard time. Yeah, <laughs> if if they're not doing their job, then that's yeah. definitely the case. But if they are, then it's get behind. Make sure the strategy's right. Make yeah. sure that you support the strategy, and then get behind the chief exec in in, in mm. um, execution. And the trouble, I mean that 
back to sort of 2007, 2008 time, it was hard to work out. I think a lot of people initially didn't realise what was happening globally. Mm. So boards were giving uh, management hard times in a lot of companies where really it was sort of, if you can, if you manage to survive that mess of the global financial crisis, you were doing an amazing job. That's right, that's right. And um, I, I have many horror stories from, from that era, um, but one in particular, um, I remember going to work one Monday morning to find that my order book had halved. <laughs> wow, yeah. And and it wasn't long-term orders. It was because we were a just-in-time manufacturer. It yeah. was like, we're not shipping anything this week. Yeah. Now, I can tell you, uh, and I guess you've been through it as well, when you're in that, when you're in that area, when you're in that situation, it's dead easy to blame everybody else. Yeah. But you do have to think, how the heck am I going to get out of this? Yeah. And what should I do to make the business stronger in the end? You know, one of the things about being a supplier to forklift trucks and you know what platforms and, and businesses like that is that they're capital intensive. Their customers are, are purchasers of capital equipment. Yeah. So when money gets tight, the first thing that goes out the window is the capital budget. Yeah. So we would always see a tightening of fiscal policy before anybody else would. Yeah. And th- that meant we were first into a recession and yeah. it also meant we were last out. I definitely I know I know exactly what you mean there. We had we had the same going in. We had loads of problems coming out as well, mind. Did mm. did you have issues coming out the other side with growing quickly and cash flow and Yeah, I you know there there were several things that we had to do as a board that were um, that shareholders would have would have kind of raised their eyebrows about, mm. but in the end, you know, the, the proof of the of the the tactic was to look back and say we survived. I mean, mm. things sensible things like if you if you don't have a lot of cash, stop yeah. the dividend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hunker down. <laughs> you know, don't don't yeah. spend money when you don't have to. So so there were a, a number of things that we did going into the recession we decided as a board we'd continue investing in engineering yeah and we were, we were investing kind of like 13 to 15 percent of revenues yeah so it was a big number very big yeah and we and we did the one of the one of the things that i i always extol when when people ask me how to run a business is your people are the are your greatest asset mm. we turned around to the employees and said can we can you all take a ten percent haircut? Right. Yeah. So their salaries went down ten percent day one. Wow. And we we restored salaries um, about eighteen months later. Right. Um, and we gave people, you know, recognition, financial recognition for sticking through the the thin period. What eventually happened is we came out far stronger than we went in, mm. with a product portfolio that was very focused on. The developing markets and electrification. Yeah, um, and we were beating people off. I think. I mean, I'm not just saying it because you're here, but I, I think you didn't just survive. I mean, you you guys knocked it out of the park in the end. In terms of when when I look at what you achieved, there are other companies out there who went through the same period and were doing electrification. But in general, they had either some billionaires' money behind them, or mm. they were a subsidiary of a much larger, mm. you know organization that and and they they 
spent a lot of money to to get to the the mm-hmm. end point. You guys did it from basically from revenue, mm-hmm. didn't really take any um, money, you know, additional shareholder yep. money. Yep. Um, and you, you not only grew the business really strongly, but then you you just got into the most amazing position, you know, mm. the last sort of three or four years, yeah. which then led to ultimately the business being being bought out. Yeah, and you know, a lot of it, power electronics, machines and drives is a very interesting area to be involved in mm. because it's ubiquitous. Yeah. When you think about where it can be applied, mm. you're not only talking about electric cars, you're talking about anything that can be hybridized. So mm. take an internal combustion engine out of a vehicle, put an electric drive system in, or leave part of the internal combustion engine in the vehicle and supplement it with a hybrid system. Yeah. All of these approaches across many, many, many sectors and markets are basically yeah. down to the power electronics, the machines, mm. the electric motors and the drives. Yeah, so it's electric cars, electric planes, electric yeah, yeah. trains. That's right. And yeah. you know the 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 power infrastructure, um, mm. uh, the charge points. Colin Herron's charge points all require power electronics. Yeah, um, and and then the grid. Yeah, I do always say like if I'm talking to kids and um, mm. we do do a bit of this sort of work, like power electronics, embedded systems, mm. um, and electrical machines are that is the place to go you know forget being a lawyer sorry any lawyers <laughs> listening forget being an accountant it really is and even and I, I love the example of the light bulb you know gone from light bulbs being really simple things now they're LEDs there's power electronics in there there's embedded mm. software just in a light bulb so mm. everything from light bulbs to um, to cars it's, it's a, it's a, it is a huge area so what, one of the things that you're really involved in now um is skills and mm-hmm. that you, you you mentioned a few times about people being an important asset and I know you you were so I, I've got a bit of a reputation now for being in the newspaper now and again but um, <laughs> you you were very often in the newspapers but talking about skills it you know and people know you because you've been so passionate and vocal about the need to upskill and to encourage kids to get into science and engineering and things mm-hmm. like that were skills a big to grow Sevcon as much as you did with skills a big problem? Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, number one, I'm far more photogenic than you, so I get in the paper anyway. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 the desire, the need for skills in engineering, in well, globally, yeah. is extraordinary. Far larger than it's ever been. That's right, we, uh, and we, you know, we think it's often people talk about being a UK problem, and it's not. Is it? It's, it's global. A global problem. Yeah. It's a global problem, and yeah. and one of the things that we are we're particularly bad at um, as a as a generation mm. is being able to instill the attractiveness, the excitement, the sexiness, if you like, of being an engineer. Yeah, we especially in this country, we we kind of hold up engineers as being kind of the grease monkey mm. um, or the or the boiler stoker. Yeah. You know, it, today, um, you may you well find as an engineer today that you have a job for life, but you have five or six careers. Yeah. And it's because the 
the discipline of problem solving and analytical approach is applicable across many, many, many different problems. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we lose engineers at the end of their degree to people like the banks. Yeah. And I, again, I would say to kids as well that a lot of engineers leave engineering mm. and go into accountancy mm-hmm. as a choice at the end of their degree. They're like, okay, yep. I'm going to go and train with the big four now. There are no accountants at the end of their degree that go into um, yeah, being an engineer. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It, it is very transferable, mm. skill set, way of thinking, you know. And one of the things that's yeah. changing actually at the moment, um, uh, much to my relief, is that when you look at the end results numbers from universities, that trend of moving to banks and to accountancy is actually slowing, if not going backwards. Yeah. And that's because engineering is now perceived, or is becoming perceived, as a, a very worthwhile career. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure, actually, what's created that difference. I, I, if, if I could put my finger on it, I'd do more of it. Yeah. Do you think it's... Um, so you've got the sort of rock star... Scientists yeah. and engineers like yeah. your uh, Steve Jobs and dare I mention him, Elon Musk, uh, yeah, those yeah. kind of characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no pot in this conversation, by the way. No. Um, <laughs> there's no alcohol yeah, or and, uh, and, and, yeah. and James Dyson and people like that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's part of it. Um, I think the other thing is that parents these days are a little bit more discerning, having having been faced with the amount of debt you leave university with. It's yeah. incumbent upon the parents to advise their kids to get a career that's going to on pay it back. Yeah. But the other, the other thing is, engineering is sexy now. I mean, there are there are aspects of engineering today that are really really attractive to to people joining the engineering fraternity. Yeah, I, do, I mean, I, I, do, I genuinely believe that obviously you'll consumer electronics and things, but actually the electric the electric vehicle mm. um, agenda, the clean air movement, things mm-hmm. that's that's really helped to mm-hmm. get a lot of kids to think about careers in engineering that maybe wouldn't have thought about it before. Yeah, one of the, one of the great things for me, um, certainly over the last year, is helping um, undergrads realise that one of the reasons why electric vehicles are becoming more prevalent is because they perform better than yeah. internal combustion engine vehicles. Yeah. You know, um, despite the fact that from time to time, British well, BBC presenters take um, Rimacs and then and, and throw them into fields in Germany <laughs> and roll them over a few times, yeah. the 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 attractiveness of a hybrid drivetrain is that it performs better than the internal combustion engine. So mm. people are actually seeing the work they do improve things rather than just keep. I think that the automotive industry definitely went through a period where basically it was all about shaving the next cent off the cost of the widget Mm -hmm. and it was all just cost optimization Mm -hmm. like VAV type work Um, what's happening at the moment with robotics and electrification it's very exciting Mm. Um, what do you think so as as we've got this big it's it's I mean it's a change like we've never seen before this kind of the next five years, ten years, what do you think the big challenges are for for electrification? In as being someone who's come from a really senior position in the industry, where would you say the the big issues are moving forward to the next few years? I, I think I think um, without creating more skilled resource, we are going to stall. Mm. 
And I think that's the biggest challenge. Now, the great thing about um, electrification is that it has many disciplines in it that Mm. are prevalent today but might not be required in the not too distant future so mechanical engineering for example yeah you know reskilling those people will fill part of the gap yeah but definitely for for the challenge for the globe at the moment is to create enough people a um uh, a, you know a kind of critical mass of of engineers capable of exploiting the power electronics that we're developing you know, the white band gap stuff that mm. we're doing today and exploiting that into other applications mm. I think that's the biggest challenge what do you think about um, autonomous vehicles yes is that a big thing do you think or well, a bit further away than people think it is or right on the doorstep or I'm a bit of a Neanderthal when these when, when these, these things um, um, are concerned I I, um, I find it difficult to believe that the engineering can keep pace with the idiot, <laughs> and yeah. and and you know you only have to drive around even in Newcastle and you get the idiot. Yeah. And and autonomy relies on a level of sophistication and control that at the moment doesn't exist. Mm. And certainly the technology is there to make vehicles autonomous, mm. but. You'd, you'd have to take control away from a number of people, or for a great many people, who like control. Yeah. And that's never an easy thing. So mm. autonomy does have its applications. In fact, um, I know of a couple of programs at the moment on in controlled areas where yeah. deliveries, you know, the final mile is done by autonomous vehicles, and that's a great application for it. Yeah. Whether they're going to be running around in Newcastle City Centre or um, doing kind of deliveries and such I kind of doubt for the foreseeable future you do get where I know where there's some of the trials are happening right now basically it's become a bit of a game for um, I'm not going to say kids because it is this sort of on university campuses students sort of throwing themselves in front of the yeah. autonomous car yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. try and make it stop yeah, um, yeah. you <laughs> do see you do get the idiot <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, quite uh, so what one other question I had about um so it's a big topic and it comes up all the time. We get asked all the time. And I think there's a little bit of sort of a lack of comprehension about how the automotive industry works in this question. But um, at the moment, car makers are evaluating various different options for how what, what the best business model is mm-hmm. to build um, these new electric vehicles. And at the moment, there isn't really a right way or a wrong way, but you could say at the moment, most car manufacturers make their own engines. Mm-hmm. They make the engines use components from sub suppliers. Um, transmissions tend to be a sub supplier component, and then they assemble those into vehicles and they take responsibility for the vehicle. And in some cases, not very. It's not. It's not all that common for the car to be contract assembled by someone else. There is a bit of that. Yep. But that's quite. It's quite rare. Correct. And obviously, you know, people have been talking about uh, different models moving forwards and contract assembly coming up for you know, Dyson or mm-hmm. Apple, mm-hmm. they put their cars into production. But do you see car manufacturers taking in-house things like motors and electronics and battery cells, or do you see that being more like outsourced and subcontracted into the supply chain? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think um, 
boardrooms in in the OEMs and the automotive OEMs are a bit schizophrenic at the moment. Mm. Uh, some of them are toying with the idea of being more integrated than they are at the moment because, quite frankly, you know, lots of cars are actually assembled. They're not actually there's no cradle to grave in any OEM that I know of. So, yeah. so there's there's lots of third party people assembling stuff and and providing it to a final assembly plant. Yeah. Um, I think there is a great deal of thinking going on at the moment in OEM boardrooms about what this change to electrification actually means for them. Yeah. Um, they have vested um, billions, if not trillions, in mechanical tooling. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's, a big, that's a big issue for them. So what do they do about that? Um, the technologies today, as you know and I know, there are many ways of solving the electrical propulsion problem. Yeah, and it, there isn't really at the moment a clear winner in what technology you should use, yeah. and it can be application specific. Yeah. So again, the the what traditionally they would they would look at it's going to have to be a five liter engine or a two liter engine. They're going well. It might be an AC induction motor or a switch reluctance motor or a <laughs> PMAC motor. Yeah. And and I think there's a lot of that going on as well. They will figure it out. I'm not sure how long it's going to take. Um, I think there are a couple of areas um, where you would say there is a lot more maturity in the thinking than okay. in others. Yeah. Um, and you wouldn't be at all surprised to, to, to find that it's in volume. And right. volume is always driven by, as you put it earlier on, about you know engineering out the last dime. Yeah, there are some technologies that allow you to do that, and some that don't. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about recently in our sort of plans that actually a, a lot of what's required now is not necessarily the fanciest technology. Mm. It's the sort of best compromise between the best performance and what can be manufactured at scale, cost effectively. Yeah, um, and there's some things which they're a great idea but then actually the execution of it is very very difficult and if you can't make it at scale um it can be the best it could be the best motor on the planet or mm. the best electronic solution on the planet mm. um you know it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be right for well actually not even automotive for robotics or anything yeah uh, agreed so there's a lot of kind of good good technology where I think people get maybe sometimes overly obsessed with the IP or the idea without really thinking enough about the application of it. Mm. Um, and I, I was, I'm not really an IP guy, but I'm an applications guy. That's, yep. I like applying stuff. Um, and that's, that's sort of where we found our niche as a business. But, um, you know, we have, um, we talk about this all the time and it's, it's that balance between the best performance, the best tech, and then uh, that manufacturing scale up. It's, um, it's a really difficult balance to, to achieve. Uh, yeah, agreed. And, and that's somewhat compounded, I think, by the lack of knowledge of the technology in the OEMs themselves. Yeah. It's very difficult to find an engineering group these days in a, an automotive company that actually does understand that mm. the performance and, and what you have to do to apply power electronics and motors to an application. Yeah. 
It's, it's going to improve, obviously, over time, but it, it was one of the challenges we had with people like Renault. They just didn't have the skill set. Yeah, we see... I, I know exactly what you mean there. And, and, and it, sometimes it's like maybe they've got the right skill, but they're in the wrong department. And because of the way it's done at the moment... <laughs> You've got sort of, if it's bolted to an engine right now that's in the engine team, but then it's not going to have an engine. So actually, who's going to deal with the coolant pump on that? In the You know, it's actually all these sort of siloed teams and departments that they have. need They need to be working together much more effectively at a systems level. Because yeah. sometimes, um, and, and particularly I think with electrified stuff, you've, you know, if you overly concentrate on saving one cent over there to the left... You've cost yourself two dollars over there to the right, and actually joining the dots up is quite difficult, isn't yeah, it? Very much so. Very yeah. Much so. You know, the the, the the great the best analogy I've got for you is um, uh, for those of you listening who know what a switch reluctance motor is. It's the simplest construction motor you'll ever find. Mm, yeah. However, and it's cheapest as well. However, the power electronics to to drive it and control it properly are probably the most expensive power electronics you're ever going to find. Yeah. So, so you're quite right. You save a couple of cents over here, and it costs you a couple of pounds over there. Yeah, joining that thinking up is um, the people who get that right. Are the, I think are the ones who are really making the big strides at the minute. Yeah. Indeed. So, so you said at, at the right at the beginning, you said the, the R word, retired word. I'm not sure many people would agree that you are currently retired. Um, uh, certainly not my wife. <laughs> so what 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 are you doing now? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I'm really helping people understand the conundrum of. Um, how do how do we ex- replicate the advances we made in engineering here mm. uh, in the UK elsewhere? Right, and a, a lot of that is about um, inward investment to here. Okay, um, trying to help people who have an electrification agenda. It's not not necessarily um, automotive, but an electrification agenda. What does good look like? Right. And, and trying to help them understand that. And the second thing I'm working on is something called the Stevenson Challenge, which is um, a, an application to the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund here in the UK, looking to create a supply chain for power electronics machines and drives. Mm. The kind of ubiquitous underlying technology. Yeah. Um, and getting that uh, up and running. Um, and that's hopefully we're going to hear something about that in the next few weeks. Uh, but that's I'm gainfully employed, running around like a headless chicken yeah, again. And <laughs> um, probably, well, hopefully a few less air miles. Oh uh, yes, uh, there's certainly a lot, a lot less air miles. <laughs> British Airways have inquired what the heck, what the heck I'm doing. I'm yeah. flying with somebody else. <laughs> yeah, where have you gone? Okay, <laughs> great. All right. Well, thanks very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so um, so that was today's podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, if you did, please don't forget to leave us a rating um, or hit like, depending on which platform you're listening to us on. And of course, don't forget to subscribe uh, so you get future podcasts from us. We try and do about one a week. We don't quite always manage that, uh, but sometimes we do do two in a week. So about one a week, there's always going to be something fresh and new coming from us, talking about electric vehicles and electric vehicle technology. We've got some more great interviews coming uh, down the line. 
And don't forget, if there's something in particular that you're interested in, um, send us a question um, and we'll incorporate that into a future podcast. We've had some really great questions come in recently and we've built um, an entire podcast around those on, on one particular topic that we've had a load of questions about. Okay, so thanks again for taking the time out to join us. I hope you got some value out of today and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.